This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In 2021, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration notified Stealth Biotherapeutics that it would not consider its application seeking approval for helimepratide as a treatment for the ultra-rare mitochondrial disease, Barth syndrome. The agency wants the company to produce evidence of the drug's efficacy in a larger population of Barth syndrome patients than it's studied, but the company believes it's exhausted the population of the United States of patients who fit the clinical trial criteria. Patients have lobbied the agency to give the drug a hearing, but there's growing concern that if the FDA fails to act, elamepratide will become unavailable to patients who say the drug has given them the ability to lead a normal life. In an effort to move the FDA, Shelley Bowen, co-founder and director of Family Services for the Barth Syndrome Foundation, launched a change.org petition calling on the agency to give a full and fair hearing to the drug. We spoke to Bowen about Barth syndrome, the fight over approval for the first drug to treat the condition, and why it points to a systemic problem with the lack of consistent use of the flexibility Congress granted the FDA to get treatments to patients with ultra-rare diseases. Shelley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I appreciate it. I'm a fan of the podcast. <laughs> thanks. We're going to talk about Barth syndrome, the problems of getting the FDA to recognize the value of an experimental therapy for an ultra-rare population without therapeutic choices, and how advocates are pushing the agency to review a drug they're refusing to consider at this time. Perhaps we can begin with Barth syndrome. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Barth syndrome is an ultra-rare condition that primarily affects boys. It's located, um, the gene responsible for Barth syndrome is located on the X chromosome. Um, girls, we do know of girls who are affected, but um, it's rarely is that the case. The incidence um, was was investigated a few years back and published in pediatrics and estimated to be one in a million males. Um, currently, we know of 134 in the United States and 283 worldwide. So it's ultra, ultra rare. Um, it is frequently fatal. Our statistics that we look at, we just basically from people that we've been in touch with over the years. And we've, we started the organization in 2000, we started tracking everybody that we were in contact with, but 
Um, 20% of those that we know die by the time they're two, uh, 45% by the time they're 16, and 75% die by the age of 30. I have lost two boys from Barr syndrome. One died when he was four, and my other son, Michael, died when he was 23. And um, the leading causes of death, Danny, are cardiac related, so arrhythmia, heart failure, cardiomyopathy is a cardinal characteristic of the condition, or sepsis. These, um, these kids can have neutrophil counts of zero. Um, they have neutropenia, I should have said that. They have um, neutropenia is another cardinal characteristic, but with a neutrophil count of zero, it leaves one um, at risk of becoming overcome by a fungal or bacterial infection and cardiomyopathy. You mentioned that you lost two sons to this condition. How were they diagnosed and what were you told at the time? Well, they were, um, this was back in the, uh, the pre-gene days, right? So my boys were very, very, uh, they were very small. They had cardiomyopathy. They both, we weren't sure what was going on. This was back in the eighties. Um, we were told when we, you know, I, Dr. Barth had originally described the disorder in 1983 in a publication. Um, we were told by a geneticist that we think that this is, I think this is genetic. I, I remember reading an article years ago, and this is back in the days where I had a paper, you know, going to the, going to the medical library. And he sent me a copy of the article that had been published. And for the first time, I felt like this was in 19... 90 and i felt like if somebody can characterize the condition somebody can do something about it even though it was described as being fatal um unfortunately two hours after i read that publication um my son evan died and i went home not knowing what the future would be for my son michael i um i traveled to amsterdam to visit with dr barth in 1996 and i had been told that everybody with bar syndrome was gone had died um, and, but Dr. Barth encouraged me to find other families. And, uh, this is before, before internet and somehow, you know, it was when I finally, I did search and searched and searched on the internet, finally found somebody in 1998 and built a website. And for the first time we, we rallied together and my son was not the only one living with the condition. So we decided early on that we were going to do something about this because we were tired of having people die and nobody, you know, it being so rare that nothing was being done about it because to us, it was our children meant everything in the world. So to us, so we, we decided then that we were going to do something about it and we are committed to do something about it still today. What happens as this condition progresses? Well, the cardiac function, what we have learned in the natural history is that the cardiac function does decline over time. So it's not, it, it is progressive. It is being appreciated now as being a pro progressive condition. Um, what I see, um, to put it in lay terms, is that what I see, I had, my father had Parkinson's. And the fatigue that I see in these kids and young men really mirrors what I saw with Parkinson's with my father. It's not, um, it's not that you have to take a nap or you have to sleep in order to recover. 
it's that you literally, your body is heavy and gets heavier and it takes more force and more energy to move and ambulate and just to exist. And if you push yourself beyond your limit, you can get sick and you will spend a lot of time trying to recover. So the recovery time is really, is really difficult for these, these kids. Um, they are typically become deconditioned because if you know that you're going to get sick, if you push yourself too far, you don't do it. So fatigue is the most debilitating aspect um, of this condition. And this is something that we learned through listening sessions that we have conducted with our group, as well as our PFDD meeting, which we, which we um, hosted in 2018. And what's the prognosis for someone with a condition today? And are there treatment options at all? Well, as I mentioned, if, um, the fatality statistics earlier, it's not good. You know, 75% fatality by the time you're 30 is, is horrible. And living, you know, looking at potentially um, being, you know, having debilitating fatigue and having to walk, use a walker or some uh, some kind of an ambulatory device in order to get around by the time you're 40, that's not, that's not ideal. Um, so it's not, uh, the prognosis isn't great, you know, so no, there are, and there are currently no treatments available for birth syndrome, which is what makes us so upset about where we are right now with a drug that has, has been proven to be safe and from the people that we know who have taken it it has been um they believe that it is effective and these are people who are living with a condition in january 2023 we featured Rini mccarthy ceo of stealth biotherapeutics and i encourage listeners to go into the archive and listen to that episode but stealth is developing an experimental therapy lapartide it's had a twisted path. The agency has passed it around with various divisions and provided it with inconsistent direction. It's refused to review its application seeking approval without giving a blow-by-blow history. Can you explain where the company and, and patients who need this drug find themselves today? Well, I, I can't really, I can't speak to what the company is doing. And I, I agree. I would encourage anybody to listen to um, your January podcast with Brini. Um, I do know that the company has truly been allies with us in trying to get this across the threshold with the FDA. We have engaged with them as well with the FDA because our we know that people are waiting for this, you know, to try, they want, they want options. And this is a drug that people who have taken it have said has made a huge difference in their lives. So our, our community is committed to try, you know, they, they are willing to take the risk that something doesn't work. We, we, we have done videos, we have submitted, we have had meetings with the FDA saying just that, that yes, we are willing to try if particularly if something is found to be safe, which in this case it has been. And, you know, we, we just can't, we can't come up with more patients. You know, it's rare, Danny, it's one in a million and maybe there's 150 people in the United States. We can't, we, we can't, there, there are no, no more people to recruit. 
And this is our frustration is that we feel that even though the FDA has said that the patient's voice matters, we've spent $100,000 on our externally led patient focused drug development meeting and we don't see any transparency that the patient's voice has come into been weighed in at all in this process. And we have had multiple listening sessions and, and been in contact frequently with the FDA and we don't see where that's been heard. The agency, I'd argue, has shown a willingness to be flexible when it comes to ultra-rare diseases, but this is a drug that's wound up in the Division of Cardiology and Nephrology at FDA. Is it true this is a division that has never approved a drug for a rare pediatric heart condition and only approved four rare disease drugs? Um, I, it is our understanding that that is the case. Um, it is, I think that there are some, that's what, what our frustration, where our frustration lies is with the inconsistencies across the various divisions of the FDA. And yes, there are, you know, it is, there are certainly examples where, and precedents where the FDA or some divisions have, have exercised flexibility or, you know, they've been given the authority to look at ultra-rare drug indications somewhat differently than they would with larger indications. And we just don't feel that this is happening um, with this, with this indication. And it's to do another study. um, it, It just, it's just, baffling. It's just absolutely baffling. And it's safe. This drug is safe. And to reiterate something you mentioned before, I, my sense is it's it's not an unwillingness to do a larger study, but there's just no more patients to study. Is that correct? We, we, there aren't, there aren't. I mean, there is just to say, go out and find more patients, which is what we have been told to do is incredulous, incredulous. You know, we we don't want anybody to be diagnosed with birth syndrome. If there are others who are out there, we would love to know about them. But one in a million males, you know, if you do the math, they're not out there. They're, we don't have the numbers. And we just, we're, we're, we recruited 10% of our population, 10% of the people we know participated. And we're not even, that's even before you even consider inclusion and exclusion criteria. That's a lot. Is it understood what the drug does? I think that that would, I would really um, lean on our key opinion leaders and our invest, our principal investigator who was involved in the study to answer that, or perhaps Rini. You launched a change.org petition in September to ask the FDA to review the drug and, and give it a fair hearing. What's been the response? Um, well, we've had since we, we just launched it. And since then, um, we have over 18,000 signatures on the on the petition, which is um, in comparison, we launched a petition, um, an, an earlier petition where we received 4,200 signatures. Um, currently, we have 18,000 on this petition asking asking the FDA to just look at all of the data. We're not saying, we're not saying, you know, we demand that you approve this, but we believe that the data will stand up on its own. And we believe that 
um, looking at all the data, including the open label extension data, will will prove that this drug has made a difference. That the you know the improvement that has been reported um, for the cardiac function um, has never been seen before, and this is something that we it just you know it can't be denied. Just look at all of the data. Look at all of the data. What's the plan to move this forward? How do you get the FDA to change its mind? Well, we're reaching out to them and we are we are appealing to the sense of reason and asking them to look at all of the data, recognizing that this is an ultra rare condition. And please look beyond the numbers, recognize that it's safe, recognize what it's doing. Also, you know, there are there there is one particular case that we have highlighted in our in our petition about a baby who was taking the drug. And I can tell you, I've been doing this for a long time since 2000. So I have never known of anyone to go on a VAD on a ventricular assist device or a Berlin heart in this case and um, improved to the extent that they have done so well that they can have it explanted and go home with their native heart. Generally, somebody dies when they're on a VAD or they have to have a transplant. But this child has gone home with his native heart with a normal cardiac function. And this is a baby. You can't, a baby can't have a placebo effect or a bias. He doesn't will himself to get better. And this story is outlined in our letter to the FDA. If the agency holds to its position, what will happen to alamipertide? Do you expect stealth to continue to pursue it? I mean, as committed as they may be to the Barth syndrome community, they have obligations to shareholders. They have other products in development. What happens to this drug? Well, it's, Unfortunately, if the agency if the agency does not approve it, or um, even if they refuse to file the application within the time frame that uh, is allotted, um, it is very unlikely that anybody who is currently taking the drug, including this baby that I just told you about, that it, it has had this remarkable recovery, um, will no longer have access to it. We have people who uh, who are working now, you know, full time and doing well and thriving, who have lived with birth syndrome their entire life. You know, some I've heard it said, you know, nobody ever when somebody asks you, what is it like to have named the condition in this case, birth syndrome? What is it like? Somebody can't say this is what it's like because they've never known what it's like to be healthy and not have birth syndrome. In this case people who are taking the stroke now know what it's like not to have birth syndrome and feel like they can do things. They can stay up with their families. They can do things that we as healthy people may take for granted. And to be told that you are going to have that taken away from you and you've got to go back to living a life that is compromised. It's just, I, it, it just, I can't help but get choked up when I think about it because, you know, you think about how can you do that? How can you do that? But the company isn't going to be able to continue to offer it 
if it's, you know, if the FDA doesn't look at the data and doesn't approve the drug. Beyond the patients who need this drug, what's at stake? What are the consequences for drug developers pursuing treatments for ultra-rare diseases and patients waiting for these treatments? Well, it's 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 our concern that we're already seeing a number of companies that are pulling out of their ultra-rare uh, drug pipelines. And, you know, we, we have a lot of, you know, this is a tight, as you know, this is a tight-knit community. And, you know, so so if a drug develop, if, if, if a drug company pulls out of an ultra-rare pipeline or rare disease pipeline, it affects all of us. It affects people we know. We, we realize that other conditions, there are other conditions where people are suffering. And we can't, you know, when you consider the cumulative number of Americans that are affected by rare and ultra-rare ultra, ultra rare conditions, um, that's a big impact. And I think there's already a chilling effect on what we're looking at in drug development for, for ultra-rare conditions. So this is a fight that's bigger than just elamepertide. This is a fight that is about, you know, there needs to be, there needs to be better processes in place at the agency to, um, to review con- indications for, for ultra-rare conditions. And, and, you know, give people, give people the opportunity to have therapies where they can improve their life. Um, there, there are precedents where it has happened in other, in other, uh, drug indications for ultra rare conditions. It's just shouldn't be luck of the draw as to what division you get assigned to. Shelly Bowen, co-founder and director of family services and advocacy for the Barth syndrome foundation. Shelly, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.